Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey friends, this episode is all about disordered eating and we also touch on eating disorders. Thus, if eating disorders or disordered eating is a sensitive topic for you, I encourage you to be mindful when going into listening to this episode or listening to this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. I am so excited for you to join me for today's episode. Today I have a very special guest with me, Emily Newton. So Emily, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm so excited too. So before we get started, can you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Emily. I'm from Toronto, Canada, and I am a master's student at the University of Toronto. I study translational research. Um, Aside from that, I do um, social media content creation, and I have a business. It's called Balance Factor, where I do podcast episodes, um, wellness tips, recipes, kind of things like that. If we go back a little bit farther, I have a Bachelor of Science in Human Kinetics, so a bit more kinesiology, sports background, which is really where I've gotten my passions for health and fitness. Um, But then I've switched gears into translational research, and yeah, so I'm in my second year of my program, and I'm doing a lot of projects, one specifically on disordered eating, and yeah, that's kind of where everything has come together, and um I love doing it all. (laughs) Yeah, and I I will uh, ask you this at the end, but uh, I love your podcast. And so I will make sure to link that in the show notes because it's just very, I don't know, even though it's, I mean, I was on your podcast, we talked more like mental health stuff, but you have a lot of just like health, wellness. You had a whole episode on coffee, which was amazing. (laughs) Like, I just love the variety, but it's all within that kind of just like overall wellness. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So you said that you are currently pursuing a master's in translational research. And I know before we connected, I had never heard of translational research or like getting a master's degree in that. So can you describe for the listeners what translational research is? Very good question. I get asked this a lot. Um, it's not, it has nothing to do with languages. Many people think because they hear translation, they're like, do you like are you like Google Translate? I'm like, no, no, not at all. Um, so translational research is basically the practice of taking research and putting it into action. So, you know, we come up in the lab with scientific discoveries or new things in just society, and it kind of sits there, it sits stagnant. And what translational research does is it works on taking that and actually getting it into the hands of the patient. So, for example, I use this one commonly when I'm explaining it 
um, say they come out with a new drug or vaccine, something like that, in the lab, and it kind of just sits there. Translational research will go in and think, okay, how can we actually get this product on the market into the hands of the patient and improve lives? So it's really bridging that gap between science and patient. They come together. I absolutely love that. And as somebody that like went through a master's program, a graduate or a PhD program, like obviously I had to do a lot of research and that's something I found a lot. Like the people that really just stick to research, stick to research and the people that stick to clinical work. And obviously I'm talking about the field of psychology, stick to clinical work. And there is that gap. Like we can read the research and it's great and super helpful, but we know it's like very controlled. Yeah. No one ever does anything. Yeah. Only X amount of participants or things like that. So um, that's awesome. Um, And I know we're going to be talking about your research today, but thank you for explaining that because honestly, like that's what is needed. Like we can't, we don't all exist in a lab, but we need that to inform. It's a newer area too. Like this, where this program is at University of Toronto, it's only been around for about I believe like eight to 10 years, I could be wrong, but it's definitely like a newer area. And within that like gap of doing the work, there's a bunch of different steps and um, kind of different approaches. Like you can, we have a framework here, it's called the Toronto Translational Framework. And there's like basically multiple different steps and you can work on different, you can end up working in those different frames of Mm -hmm. the framework throughout your journey going forward. So that could be like ideation, it could be more like exploratory, things like that. Like there's so many different parts of it. That's why it's so complicated, but um, it's really helpful in the end to anyone that's really made progress in research and science, yeah. Absolutely. So um, when you were introducing yourself, you said you are working on like a bunch of different projects. Um, And one that you mentioned that you're working on that we're going to talk about today is on disordered eating. So can you like talk about the project that you're currently working on as much or as little as you want to share? Yeah, of course. So disordered eating is a very interesting area of work. Um, So I'll kind of explain how this project kind of came into the works. So me and two other of my colleagues, um, we all kind of had previous experiences either knowing somebody or personally experiencing just an abnormal relationship with food or um, eating disorders or anything, just kind of, we all had some sort of concrete experience. And for me personally, I was an athlete. Um, I actually was a varsity athlete and I was kind of put in this toxic environment where what I was eating was quite controlled and monitored and it really affected me long term on how I was able to just eat without, you know, worrying about it or um, eat really intuitively and just what I enjoy. And it was a conscious worry in my head of if I don't eat this, am I going to perform a certain way or am I going to look a certain way? And as I moved away from this sport, it still affected me. So as we started getting into this program and picking topics for research, um, I found a lot of issues in social media when it came to looking at these what I eat in a day videos. And this was kind of what sparked my interest in it because I saw how problematic they were. 
And I wrote an article actually, this is my first kind of thing in this with a registered dietitian. She's known as Abby Sharp. Mm -hmm. Um, She does a lot of critique and videos on showing really what's wrong with these videos and bringing light to the, you know, like, like somebody might eat like this, but it doesn't mean you have to. And um, so I did this article and it really sparked an interest. And I was like, you know what, I want to keep this conversation going and kind of formed a group. And we realized that through our research, the DSM-5 criteria for eating disorders is very strict in that Mm -hmm. somebody... There's very, there's, you know, you got your categories of eating disorders and anybody else that doesn't exactly fall within those categories is neglected and really left on their own. And um, we found that in clinical practices, a lot of practitioners will not be able to identify people with abnormal behaviors with food because they're not fitting into that box and clinically it just, they're not, they're, they can't give them a diagnosis. So we are basically with this project um, developing an intervention, which right now it's in the works and quite still early uh, stages, but um, it's going to be a web app. And this web app is going to be accessible to many different individuals, but it's going to be kind of a concrete hub of psychological support, physical support, nutritional support, and give an integrative approach. Um, So it's very still in the works but yeah so the whole area of disordered eating is just so interesting and there's so many people that are affected by it especially since covid Mm -hmm. um the numbers have gone up tremendously and it's a huge precursor to so many um chronic health conditions such as eating disorders hypertension um obesity so many things so um we're really hoping this kind of works out and um can help people. That's, that's awesome. And thank you for sharing a little bit about your experience and your journey. Um, and I know you've talked about that on your podcast as well, like being a varsity athlete and then other experiences that you've had. And I know you've had Abby Sharp on your podcast as well. Um, and yeah, as somebody, so I work with individuals with eating disorders and yeah, I, I would argue that, our field does not do a good job at intervening early in that disordered eating timeframe mm-hmm. um, because I end up seeing a lot of individuals in the hospital. So their eating disorder got so bad that they landed in the hospital versus, you know, individuals being able to pick up on the maladaptive of a di- or disordered eating patterns before then. Yeah, and that's that's the problem is we're trying to really prevent that. And a lot of individuals don't really realize they have abnormal behaviors with food until it really gets to that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's even – so the definition of disordered eating is really like people that don't fit in that criteria and it's hard to identify because it's so unique and individualistic but it can be overeating it can just be um anxious eating restriction preoccupation with looking fit Mm -hmm. there's so many little things that you know we think as okay that's not like a great those are insecurities but there's actually more to it and there's a psychological component to it and also a physical component that gets affected. And that's why these are so complicated is that it's not just 
a psychological aspect, mm -hmm. it's also physical. And that's, that's where it all gets so complicated. Absolutely. And I love that you just gave some examples and like something I think about with disordered eating behaviors too, is a lot of times they're very normalized. Um, like, I don't know if you, you were a varsity athlete in college. So I don't know if you had this experience, but I did. And I knew a lot of people like, especially for college age females would quote unquote, save their calories before they went out to drink, because then you drink, you haven't eaten, you get intoxicated faster, like that whole process, which yeah. was normalized. But like looking back, that is so just like, you don't need to save calories. <laughs> no, and it's it's so bad. And it's actually funny that you mentioned that example, because we were actually just talking about that the other day in our work. And the area we really find the most problems in, and we've identified, you know, there's different groups, you have children who can get quite um, just have abnormal things with foods like just fears and then you go more into adolescence and we've really found the biggest problems occur between ages 17 to 24 especially that transition when students go to college and they're on their own and they were used to their family preparing their meals and now they have a sense of control over what they're eating and they've never had that before. Mm -hmm. And it's it's confusing to kids. And then they also fear, you know, you hear of freshman 15 and that's a huge anxiety provoking thing for many females and also males as well. But um, yeah, it's definitely that age group that's hit the most by this and you look long term in their late twenties. That's when they can really suffer if it's not dealt with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that you also brought up like the impact of COVID um, on disordered eating behaviors because I've seen that significantly in the hospital I worked or I work in um, before the pandemic. I think I saw two eating disorders in the like two ish years I worked there prior to the pandemic, and. This calendar year alone hospitalized, I think I've seen like 48 individuals. And and once again, that's like full-blown meeting criteria for an eating disorder. So imagine how many more people are out there engaging in disordered eating behaviors. Yeah. And the hard thing with COVID, I mean, we were all left in our homes. There was not a the thing is, is there was not a lot of things we could control. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the thing with food. It's something that, you know, we need food to live and we have control over what we put in our mouths. It's, you know, mm -hmm. we can either pick to have that cookie there or we can pick to have that apple. It's really up to us. And um, during COVID, we were just stuck in our homes with not a lot of things to preoccupy ourselves with. And especially children mm -hmm. didn't have their social interactions, things like that. So food became a preoccupation. It became something that people just took more interest in, either for the better or for the worse, or they avoided it just all around because they just didn't have an interest in it anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I knew um, when I asked you about like your current project, you shared a little bit about what got you interested in researching disordered eating behaviors based on your own experiences, the experiences of your colleagues, and then kind of observing social media. But I also wanted to give you an opportunity if there was anything else that really either got you interested or maintained your interest in researching disordered eating behaviors. Yeah, great question. I think there's a lot of things because, you know, 
as an athlete, I saw other people also affected by it. And as I've started Balance Factor and creating these podcast episodes, I've gotten a lot of feedback. And once I wrote that article as well, and I did a my very first episode, I also interviewed um, a very well-known fitness wellness influencer on the topic of these what I eat in a day videos and how you can approach them to know like what works for you and the feedback I got from that was just mind-blowing like I had reached people's lives that I never thought from across the world who were coming to me saying you know that really was helpful I'm I'm suffering and I've also talked to a lot of people my age as well that just have shared that they just like they get anxious about what they eat and you see it a lot more than you think you do once you're aware of what these symptoms look like and it becomes very much on your radar and I just really noticed that wow there's so many people affected by this yet nobody's doing anything about it Mm -hmm. um so kind of all of that coming together really sparked our interest to do this project and for this project to really be successful it's definitely something you have to be passionate about and having a lived experience as well as knowing a bunch of people affected by it that's really where all of my drive for it came from i love that and i think you know so many of us at least in the mental health field i can't speak to other fields but i think it's similar in like the nutrition field as well tend to go into the field or focus our research or clinical interests on a certain area because of that lived experience. A lot of us, I find, develop a passion based on whether it's like ourselves that have lived it or witnessing somebody close to us. Um, So I'm glad there's people like you that have such a passion for it because, I mean, we're only, I don't even know how many minutes into this conversation and we've identified so many things or so many reasons why there's a need to identify these individuals. Yeah. And it's, you know, the age group that's being really affected, it's, it's really affecting them, like just in the long run, like we need to, we need to intervene before it gets worse. Absolutely. So kind of on that idea of needing to intervene before it gets worse, what have you found are the biggest struggles or barriers for individuals that have disordered eating, but do not meet full criteria for an eating disorder? Great question. There's a lot of things. Um, so there's a couple of things we can touch on there. First of all, if depending upon where they seek support, so mm-hmm. or whether they even are going to get support. So in clinical practice, if they're not, if they do not have a specific BMI, you know, somebody could actually be experiencing a lot of symptoms associated with associated with anorexia, but if their BMI is not low enough, they will not be quote unquote red flagged as Mm -hmm. having anorexia and be provided care. So that's kind of one thing that's BMI is a big factor in all of this, which as we know in research, it's not the best tool yet. We still continue to use it and it's very frustrating, but (laughs) besides the point, we can't change it. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is the education and perspectives from all different medical professionals. And you can have nutritionists, dietitians, psychologists, everything. But if they're not specifically 
knowing how to treat and identify these symptoms, especially ones that work in nutrition and dietitian, if they don't have a good background in the psychological aspect of this, that's where things can get really problematic. And I'll give you an example. So for me, when I was an athlete and I had to see a nutritionist, that nutritionist didn't have any background or knowledge in the psychological component of having a healthy relationship with food. So, you know, I was given this meal plan to eat at certain times a day, certain things, and that was it. Meanwhile, in the background, there was a full psychological spiral occurring because I didn't understand that this could affect me in many different ways. So going back to everything I've touched on, it's all of that integrative approach. These professionals may be educated in one area, but they're not educated in the other area of disordered eating. And as we said, there's the physiological and the psychological component. So that's what makes it so complicated is that you really need that integrative approach to helping these individuals because it's not just one side of the spectrum. I love everything you said and I was taking notes so that we could like go back and further discuss it. So yeah. Your first point about BMI, first of all, I could go on a rant about BMI for hours. So we will not do that. But I hold the same sentiments as you as it's very frustrating that we still utilize that as a health measure when research shows it's not a good <laughs> yeah. measure of health. Um, but you talked about, you know, individuals may you know, basically meet criteria for anorexia other than the BMI. And so they're not quote unquote red flagged. And I see that all the time. Like, and I hate, hate, hate the term atypical anorexia. I think it's stigmatizing. I think it makes it sound like it's less than, but I have worked with individuals that had quote unquote atypical anorexia. They were not taken seriously because they were in larger size bodies or their BMI was in the normal range to I'm not going to use the terms that the BMI uses, but or above um, the normal range. And then they end up in the hospital with their labs all out of whack. That's not a clinical term. Um, Heart rate really low, all those things, because since by looking at them, they did not look like they were quote unquote sick. Yeah. They never got the um, intervention and help that they needed. Yeah, that's... It's so it's it's sad because people are really suffering and you know they might come to their doctor and say I'm I'm struggling with eating or or even their doctor might not even ask which mm-hmm. they really typically they only ask if there's a physical appearance that brings to their attention that perhaps maybe this person is under eating or overeating so it, that's the hard part about this is that unless there's a physical attribute being present it's really hard to come back and say, are you suffering? What What's going on with your relationship with food, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the second thing you talked about was like the education with professionals and the integrative approach. So I love integrated care. My doctoral program was one of the only um, APA accredited. So APA is our American Psychological Association programs that focus on integrated care. And that's why I work in a hospital because to your point, like, and I know we're talking about disordered eating here, but mental and physical health are so integrated in every aspect. Like 
And I know, and not to put you on the spot, but your most recent podcast episode that I listened to, you talked about your own like physical health journey and that how that impacted your mental health. And so I think integrated care is so necessary, but going back to if these individuals with disordered eating patterns aren't even reaching out for help, or maybe they're just going to their primary care doctor like once a year for a checkup, it's unlikely that they have that team like built around them anyways. Um, And to your point that you just said a few moments ago, if they're not being asked the questions of like, talk about your relationship with food, or there's no true physical signs of concern, they're not even going to get that integrated team to help them. Yeah. And, you know, you can, uh, there's a lot of also things running on social media with different nutritionists and there is holistic medicine and there's functional medicine and all these things. It gets very confusing to people. And we see these videos of these, what I eat in a day videos or recipes, and they come from holistic nutritionists. And I'm not putting a downer on these individuals at all. I'm just saying that there's different perspectives on nutrition and depending on the person that seeks help from whom and where that can really affect them long term if they're not careful about it and Mm -hmm. if that quote-unquote nutritionist is not educated in properly helping individuals both psychologically and physically it can be really detrimental in the long run Mm -hmm. well and i would argue that most fields do not get training in specific like disorder eating or eating disorder. So to like you brought up your nutritionist. I mean, I work with dietitians in the hospital and outpatient since I um, treat eating disorders, but they have to get extra specific training in eating disorders. Yeah. Myself, I never planned to work with eating disorders or disordered eating, but due to a number of circumstances, a lot of eating disorders coming into the hospital, like I had to get extra training to know how to provide adequate care, what to look for. And like doctors, I I mean, I work with a bunch of physicians. They don't get training in it unless they seek out extra training. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's it's really, it comes down to the doctor's choice on doing that. It's not Mm going to be something that somebody says you need to go and seek additional information on this topic it's really up to the practitioner okay i need to you know learn more about this in order to help people and sometimes that just may not on their radar or something they really want to do absolutely absolutely um any other barriers challenges things that you have come across in your research that you want to highlight with regard to individuals with disordered eating yes i think the another barrier would be understanding where to go to get the help Mm -hmm. and you know like we've talked about there's so many different avenues because it's psychological and physiological you know you could go to a nutritionist you could go to a dietitian but you could also go see a psychologist and there's just this abundance of information which is great in a way you know like we have access to all this information but it's sometimes too much And, you know, if this is somebody who's 18, 19 years old, trying to process that and figure that out, especially if they don't have an education in health sciences, Mm -hmm. is extremely confusing. Like if I was somebody in who studied business or 
something completely different and I were to go and look up help for a doctor or something specific, I would be extremely confused. Mm -hmm. I only am able to navigate this because I understand who these people are and what they do. But on the, like, people I know that aren't in the field have no idea what it even means, the difference between a psychotherapist and a psychologist. Not a lot of people know what that is. Yeah. So there's just an abundance of information, yet it just kind of sits there and nobody really can understand what it means or what it can do to help them. Mm -hmm. I love that you pointed out like the overabundance of information. You know, you and I are both on social media. We both create content um, to provide like education and information. And at the same time, although that is great, it can be overwhelming for people that are trying to like navigate from ground zero. And another thing you just brought up, like with regard to trying to figure out who to see and things like that, as we already touched on, okay, you may find a nutritionist, but then if they don't have training and knowledge in disordered eating behaviors, they're probably not going to be beneficial to you. It actually might be more harmful. Same as if you go to a therapist or a psychologist who doesn't have training in disordered eating or body image or eating disorders, like going to somebody, even though you know, okay, this is the profession I need to seek out may actually be more harmful or at minimum, just not helpful. Um, because there's then subsets of expertise within all these fields, which is even more overwhelming. Exactly. And I mean, some people may not even experience any normal associations with food or body image until they, you know, perhaps maybe somebody is, I can even give an example of myself. I, so I had a bit of a colitis flare up and I was really given no answers on what to eat or how to eat. And I was recommended to see some dietitians and naturopath, things like that. And I was kind of given this really strict list of things I should eat and not eat to reduce the inflammation in my body. And beforehand, I didn't think too much of it. But then once I started following this regimen, it became extremely anxiety provoking and um, restrictive. And I kind of stopped myself and you know, like, yes, I need to work on my gut health and getting my energy back. But psychologically, this is not serving me well. Mm -hmm. And we look at these people, and especially if they have tendencies to be quite anxious and things like that, if they're kind of put in that environment where somebody's going to give them a list of things to eat and not to eat, that's just asking for problems. It really Mm -hmm. is. Because they already are experiencing anxiety in different ways but as we know with anxiety it can move to from thing to thing or addictive personalities people become over obsessed about these things and it just it's asking for problems it really is absolutely and i'm also thinking like even outside of you know an anxiety disorder if somebody's just like really perfectionistic or people pleasing but maybe don't have full-blown like anxiety or any meat criteria for another mental health disorder like I imagine getting a list of foods, okay, you can eat this and can't eat this, like become very obsessive and rigid, like, oh, I need to make sure I'm doing everything right. I need to, not only for me, but so my doctor will be happy with me. And I mean, yeah, that's not a way to live either, like psychologically or physically. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes, you know, also we see on social media, these bunch of different diets. And I mean, there, there, some diets are 
they work for people and they're appropriate. But we have to remember there's a large group of people that they don't work for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see like gluten-free diets, dairy-free diets. And I mean, I have to eat gluten-free and dairy-free, but that's because I have other issues. That doesn't mean that other people need to eat that way, but they continue to share that information and, and basically promote it. Mm-hmm. But on the, you know, on the other side, these people watching this content, they'll be going to restaurants now thinking, I have to eat gluten-free. I have to eat dairy-free if I want to look, look a certain way. And it just it spirals and spirals. And then we get these really chronic patients that need hospitalized care because it just gets so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think you just highlighted a really important point. Like a diet due to medical reasons versus a diet due to like aesthetic reasons. Cause I mean, I haven't seen it as much, but I know a couple of years ago, ketogenic diet was like all over social media. And as somebody that works in a children's hospital, I've seen a lot of kids on the ketogenic diet, but that's because they have seizures and their seizures are not responding to medication. And that is what the keto diet was originally discovered utilized for is for children with, um, epileptic seizures. And so to your point, like, yes, there are some health reasons people need to be gluten-free, dairy-free. I mean, I'm lactose intolerant. I always say I'm the worst person though, because I still eat dairy yeah, and then regret it. Um, (laughs) But like there, there are reasons, but then on, in the other camp, you see people promoting this and maybe they do have, you know, a gluten intolerance, but the consumers are like, oh, well, you know, this person is promoting this gluten-free and they look like this and they look so happy. So I'm going to go on that. And it's mostly for, like you said, body image reasons or really not like a necessity, which in turn can make them psychologically feel worse, physically feel worse. Because your body does need, like every type of food serves a purpose and your body needs it unless like your body is rejecting it. Exactly. to it, then don't do it. Yeah. And the most biggest problem I see with social media is we see these, I'm going to go back on these what I eat in a day videos. And we often will see the person creating the video say, you know, this is, they do give disclaimers and say, this is what I eat. And just because it works for me may not work for you. Mm-hmm. However, that's great. But if we go back to what the start of all these videos are, there's always a picture video of their body. And most often we see it's females in a sports bra and leggings. And it's the first thing you see. And, you know, I've also through my education, I learned a lot about consumer behavior. And that initial three seconds is what draws someone in and for young females if that's what they're seeing they're automatically going to go to the spectrum of thinking I need to eat to look that way Mm -hmm. and even though that influencer or content creator whatever they are if they provide that disclaimer saying you know you don't need to eat like this it defeats the purpose when the initial target is their body yeah I am so glad you brought that up because I have a lot of feelings about what I eat in the day in the day videos I don't think all are bad. I don't think all are ill-intentioned. Just for me, I do not find them helpful. And that was a theme I noticed in the vast majority of them. It's always, here's my acai bowl. 
I'm holding in my sports bra yeah, and I'm very posed. Like, and I love the, what you just brought up about the first three seconds um, of consumer behavior and that being the most influential. I'm going to keep yeah. that in mind. <laughs> moving yeah, forward. It's, 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 it's crazy how much um, it's also like a lot of marketing involved in it too, mm-hmm. but it's just psychologically we gravitate within the three seconds and it's, it's what draws people in and you know that's how certain videos on TikTok and social media go virals because it's really up to those initial concrete seconds of whether that catches someone's attention or not and for females sadly enough it's it tends to be these body image pictures that we see mm-hmm. and it's it's sad and it's just it's it's not necessary really it's not and we could we could prevent a lot of issues if we just stuck to you know how does this actually make me feel versus how does this make me look Mm -hmm. oh i I love that i love that so earlier you introduced the project you and your colleagues are working on and correct me if i'm wrong but it is called the disordered eating project yes correct okay and you talked about how it's in its earlier stages um but i did want to give you an opportunity if there was more you wanted to talk about um, with regard to that project, as well as like your overall goals for the project, like big vision, what do you hope for this project? Yeah, so the Disordered Eating Project is going to be a intervention. A, we're going to come up with a prototype, which is going to be a web app. And it will be based primarily in Canada. Um, actually, not primarily. It will be based in Canada. So we are going to be testing this on mostly individuals within Ontario. Perhaps we might expand. That's still unknown at the moment. But this prototype is going to be a web app interface that's going to be accessible to our target age group is going to be individuals 17 to 24. And we are going to create this this platform that has a very integrative approach. And this is what we kind of discussed. And we're working alongside um, some psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, dietitians that are also psychotherapists. So they have the very integrative approach to this. And we're really bringing all avenues together of what affects disordered eating and psychological and physical health into this one hub, which is going to basically help people find the care they need. So whether they need to more work on their psychological aspects of things the app will direct them in that avenue based on the questions they answer and if they need more nutritional support it will go that way and this isn't only targeted towards we often think disordered eating or eating disorders is anorexia that i feel most people come up with their head in that this is also overeating um, emotional eating things like that. It's the full spectrum of associations with food so it's a very much integrative approach to the whole issue and so we're going to test it and see how it goes and basically our project will be figuring out how this works and it may or may not work and that's what we'll figure out but um, for now that's our goals and um, we will hopefully see some results and perhaps maybe it could go somewhere maybe it won't but that's part of translational research is testing and um, like doing prototypes and fixing problems. So um, it's a whole, all part of the process, really. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Emily. And the whole time you were talking and especially a web-based app and things like that, assuming that it does work, it works well, you know, 
as a psychologist, I always think of accessibility. And this seems like something that would really increase access um, for individuals who have disordered eating, or maybe don't, going back to some of the things we already talked about, maybe don't know where to reach out for help. Like this seems like a very concrete thing. Like, oh, there is the disordered eating project. Like (laughs) that seems to fit what I'm struggling with. Um, And then they get all that insight and knowledge and expertise um, from people that have the knowledge, have the training and do this. So um, I'm excited to follow along and see what comes of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all a process. And I think our biggest challenge is going to be targeting the group and figuring out how to get it in the hands of them. Mm-hmm. And one thing I might add is that we found often that there's, you know, with mental health, large stigma. But with disordered eating, it tends to be heightened a little bit more because it's associated with your body and mm-hmm. it gets complicated. So we found that within this age group, it's very much avoided. And we want this web app to be a more of a personal experience that people could do on their own. And they don't feel the need to disclose it to a lot of different people. They can go to this platform and, you know, mm-hmm. learn things, acquire some knowledge. But also within the app, we hope to have you know, based on a geographical location, connect them with medical professionals that they could actually go and see help. So um, it's going to be a very integrative approach. Like I said, it could end up being completely different than what I'm talking about right now. But <laughs> let's hope it ends up being what that one. <laughs> but, but that just speaks to like research and research projects. And like, I mean, I remember being in graduate school and like having an idea for a research project and like the outcome of that project and what it ended up being was totally different than the original plan. But that's why we need people like you that are doing this type of research and figuring out what works, what doesn't work. Oh, we had this great idea, but now actually when trying to apply it, that doesn't make sense. So let's, um, but a lot of people don't realize all that goes into research and research projects. A lot on the back end that you don't really think. And, you know, you even look at the COVID vaccines that, they come out with and it, we often just think oh they're in the lab they come up with this vaccine oh great okay let's inject it in our arms there's a whole another thing going on in between all that that nobody thinks about and it's like critical to actually making people's lives better mm-hmm. oh yeah or or i mean i don't know how many people are like me and read research papers like for fun um but like you you see the final like research paper that's maybe like a 15 page research paper and you're like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. And it's like, that actually took a year to do the, or a year to prep the project, a year to collect the data. And then like two years to public, <laughs> like, it's just such a slow. long process. Yes. Too slow. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a grueling process. Um, So Emily, as we're getting close to wrapping up our conversation, although I could talk to you for an entire day on this. Um, If someone is listening and is struggling with disordered eating, what words of advice or encouragement do you have for them? Great question. Um, My first advice coming from somebody who's lived experience with this is that you really have to be your own advocate for your own health. Um, You know, there's doctors, there's like we've talked all about in this episode, there's many people that are available to us for help, but it's really up to you to make that effort and make that step to getting that help. 
And what I'm going to add to that is that help looks different for everybody. So you really do have to learn and figure out, you know, listen to yourself. Is this more something I'm having problems with physically or is this something psychologically? And as you start to figure that out, reach out to the people that are more applicable to those areas and just be open about it and don't hold back because holding back is just not not it the more we bottle things in it's just not good in the long run and last thing I'm going to add is just be cognizant and careful of who you're seeking help from and my best advice is whether to look into whether that individual has some previous experience working with eating disorders or disordered eating. That's a really critical aspect to getting the proper care. And I mean, it's very difficult to find those people and that's part of the problem. But if you can, as much as you can, find someone that has more knowledge and expertise in that area, it's really going to benefit you, regardless if if you're looking more for psychological support or physical support. It's a whole big picture and... You need someone that has some foundation in that area. Yeah. Thank you so much for your insights. Um, Yeah. And I think the key message is like reach out for help. Like you're, I always say with regard to mental health, like you're never not bad enough to get help. Like you don't have to hit rock bottom to. Exactly. And I think. Most of us think that we need, you know, we feel guilty when we feel sad or we feel guilty when we feel anxious because we think, you know, I shouldn't feel this way. I have a lot of things that are good in my life. Like, why do I feel this way? And there's nothing wrong with feeling that way. And I've even learned that myself, that you're allowed to have some off days. You're allowed to do this. But it doesn't mean you need to be hospitalized to actually Mm -hmm. get some help. Yeah. Absolutely. So Emily, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to touch on with regard to your research, disordered eating in general, or anything else? Um, I think we touched on most things. I'm just trying to think if there's anything I haven't touched on. I mean, like you said, I could probably talk about this all day. Um, but basically, like, you know, I just hope if anyone's listening and they're suffering that we bring more awareness to this area and people are able to get some more insight on what disordered eating really looks like and how they can potentially go and get some help. I mean, it just, it's, we need to act before the problems get worse. Like you said, kids are ending up in the hospitals and it's, it's scary. It Mm -hmm. really is scary. And we need to start intertwining before it gets worse. And there also is an aspect with children and their parents and parental roles play a big part. So another piece of advice I'd also recommend and not even parents it can be social groups if you're someone who's also struggling with this just be cognizant of the people you're surrounding yourself with because often food is a social thing it's very Mm -hmm. much a social um, celebrations anything like that we there's food involved but if you're surrounding yourself by friends that are not serving you well in that area perhaps they're very restrictive or they make comments about what you eat that can add up and lead to a lot of distorted thoughts um a lot of things physically as well so you know just kind of reevaluating the people you surround yourself with as well i think that's a big component to all of this yeah absolutely 
So the last question I love to ask all my guests is where can people connect with you? Yes. So you can find me. Everything is at Balanced Factor. Um, So that's my Instagram, my TikTok, as well as I have a website. It's balancefactor.com. And we have some more exciting things coming out on the website soon. So if you want to learn about that, my podcast called The Balance Factor is available on all podcasts. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, If you're curious to know more about my work and my story, feel free to listen along. I have a lot of fun. I also interview guest speakers like yourself. So um, yeah, that's, that's about it. Well, and I will make sure to link all of those in the show notes so people can reach out and connect with you. Like I said at the beginning, I love your podcast. Um, it's one that I listen to like regularly when um, the new episodes come out. So I encourage everybody to check it out. If you like my podcast, I mean, Emily's is much more broad to overall wellness, but talks a lot about or it talks about a lot of similar things that I cover on here. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today and offering your insights and everything. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, it was a pleasure to speak with you and I, I love talking about this and um, this was great. And thank you, the listeners, for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.